Well, tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6. We may even embark a little bit in chapter 7. Moses is now going to begin his back and forth with Pharaoh. And uh, he's, he's at the, the point that we're at right now with Moses' mission to go before Pharaoh to get the release of God's people, Israel, is his struggling with his circumstances. Very often we, we feel like we're led, to the Lord, led by the Lord to do something for the Lord. And as we are embarking on that mission, all we see is obstacles. All we see is uh, a clear message, this ain't happening, this can't happen, this is impossible or whatever. And it's very easy for us to think that the opponents of God are bigger than they are, consider God to be smaller than he is, uh, see our circumstances as immutable, they can't be changed in any way. And in those moments, God works in our hearts to increase our measure of faith. This is it's amazing how this works, but this is kind of what we were all about last night in the men's Bible study as we were studying in James chapter 1. And so you'll see a, a tie to the message of that chapter as we go on. Uh, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 6, and we read there that then, Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Now... I'm going to stop right there just to say that Moses has already gone before Pharaoh. Uh, we saw that in the previous chapter uh, where he, he's before Pharaoh and he's, he's telling Pharaoh while he's there and he's saying, uh, the Lord sent me to come to speak to you about releasing God's people. And, and Pharaoh's response very summarily is, who's, who's the Lord that I should pay any attention to what he wants or what he's instructing you to tell me to do and so Moses hearing this from the Lord it's like uh, excuse me but did you see what happened the last time I was there and yet the Lord says now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh God wanted Moses to know that he's in charge Moses was discouraged because he was too impressed by Pharaoh he was he was seeing Pharaoh as this obstinate super powerful guy who is pushing back on God's plan. And, and yet God is telling him that with a strong hand, not only will Pharaoh let him go, but he will enthusiastically and with a strong hand let the people go. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, because of course God knows Moses' heart, so he knows the doubt that's in Moses' heart. And so God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. It's interesting because there's a number of times, probably scores of times throughout the course of the Bible, where the Lord pulls somebody aside to remind them that I am the Lord. And, and we could use that reminder probably about once a day or maybe more. Um, Jeremiah 32, 27, God speaking through Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is there anything too hard for me? I mean, the kind of issues that we face in our daily lives, obviously very different than what Moses is facing here, trying to get a whole nation to release a whole nation. 
and to go back to a specific place. But a lot of the things that we face loom large in our lives. Relationships with people would probably be at the top of the list. Relationships with our family, with spouses, with neighbors, uh, with fellow members of your church, uh, with people who are opposed to the the cause of Christ, uh, financial issues. Goodness gracious, I mean, some of the things that have happened in our economy recently would give a lot of people cause for concern. You know, if one company or, or even a whole industry's uh, prospects go down and their stocks go down, a few people are affected, but it's not a general worry. But when banks start to fail, that becomes, you know, kind of a universal concern. And these things go on and we, we see them and sometimes we forget that God is the Lord and there is nothing too hard for him. And so God continues to, say, to, to, to bolster this idea in Moses' heart and mind about him being the Lord. He says, I appeared, verse 3, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Now, uh, he says something, something very uh, curious here where he says in verse 3 that I appear to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. This is curious because I think I even mentioned this last time. Yahweh, which is, which is basically Lord, uh, appears like 160 times in the book of Genesis. I mean, they, they clearly knew him and referred to him as Yahweh or the equivalent of that time. But I think what, what the, the Lord is saying here is they knew me as the Lord who made a covenant with them. But those people, the, the patriarchs, they did not live to see the realization, the application, the, the consummation of that covenant. And uh, this, this generation that Moses would lead, they would ultimately see and be beneficiaries of the promises that were made to the patriarchs. And so they, the patriarchs knew him as Yahweh, Lord God, who has given us a promise but Moses' generation, what Moses would lead into the, to the promised land, they will know God as the Lord who keeps his promises. And this becomes very significant in the lives of these people because in their entire wilderness wanderings, they are going to have doubt after doubt, after denial, after rebellion. And at each instance, God is going to show that he is a promise keeper, that, that those who wait upon the Lord will ultimately receive and live to see what God has promised. Again, great application for us because there's a number of promises that God has made to us in our lives. We, we hold the promise of the blessed hope, don't we? The blessed hope is that the Lord is going to call up his church to him one day, which we believe is very soon. That's one of the major themes of this conference that's coming up is that the Lord's return is very soon. This is a promise that we hold. And whether we live in our mortal bodies till that moment or whether we are called up from the grave, this is a promise that we hold. 
And because God has made it, we can live in the midst of God's keeping of that promise. We can live with that confidence. We can live with, with all that God wants us to know. We, we talked about it last Sunday as we finished up the book of First Thessalonians. And so this is why he's telling them that uh, they didn't know him as Yahweh in the way that this generation is going to know him because um, God, God wants these people to have relationship with him. This is one of the great failings of religion. Uh, religion, by the way, is a, is a human construct. It, it's a way in which we approach God and very, uh, very little of what we find in religion was actually put upon us or specified to us by God. I mean, if we look, for example, at, I think it's Acts 2.42, uh, that description of what, what church was like in the first century, it was based, very basic things. Continuing in the word of God, the apostles' doctrine, prayer, uh, breaking of bread, fellowship, communion. And, and that, was, that was what was described there. And in the centuries that followed, all kinds of liturgy is added and, and ritual and this and that. And very often what ends up happening is people's hearts attached to the ritual. Uh, I've actually had people say, well, you know, we, we love coming to your church. We love hearing the word preached, but we kind of miss the high church uh, ambiance. You know, we kind of miss coming into this big hall with high ceilings and stained windows and, and the, the, the kind of music that you hear and, and, and the, the liturgy that, that lays out, we do this here, then we do that there, and the certainty and the... And the the comfort of, of doing things the same way. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't criticize that at all. I mean, as long as people understand that that is not a predicate to being saved, you know, if, that, if that's the way they want to approach God, that's wonderful. That's fine. The danger I see in it is that people's hearts attach to that and they don't, they're not encouraged enough to have a relationship with the man who happens to be God, Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to have a personal relationship with him where we understand the promises that he has made and we receive those as certain because we know the character of the God we serve. When you know somebody, well, what you know, what, what you file away in your mind is their character. If, if you know somebody well enough that you would say, hey, uh, we're going out for the evening, would you mind watching our children? You would only ask somebody to do that if you knew them well, knew their character, and trusted it. This is what Jesus said about, about the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. John 15, 13 and 15, he said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. Hence I call you not servants, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord does. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. God has, Jesus Christ has demonstrated his willingness, his desire to have relationship with us, to have friendship with us, because he died in our place. I mean, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. He wants us to know him as a promise keeper, not just as this lofty, ethereal 
promise maker, but the one who has consummated the promises made of God. This is the distinction that I believe the Lord is telling Moses concerning how his people that are going to be led by Moses will know the Lord in a way that's different from what the patriarchs um, know, knew him as. So God has remembered his covenant with his people. The question is, can Moses remember his God in the midst of difficult times? Now listen to what God says here between verses 6 and 8. Therefore, now he's speaking to Moses. He's given Moses instruction on, on how he's going to speak to the children of Israel. He says, therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. Here he goes again. I am the Lord. Now what you have there is seven I will statements. Seven, God's perfect number. He, I will bring you out, verse 6. I will rescue you from bondage, verse 6. I will redeem you, verse 6. I will take you as my people, verse 7. I will be your God, verse 7. I will bring you into the land, verse 8. I will give it to you as a heritage. Imagine how it would be to live 400 years in the land of other people, being basically their slaves, their servants, and, and above all of what you could ever hope, wish, or ask for, God says, I'm going to lead you out of that situation. Not only am I going to lead you out of it and redeem you completely with a strong arm and with judgment, but I am going to bring you to a place, a very choice place, and I'm going to give it to you as a heritage. And of course, these I will statements which God has every bit, every intention to keep perfectly and has all the power you could imagine to make it happen. These you would contrast to the five I will statements that Satan utters in Isaiah chapter 14, where he speaks about he will ascend to the most high and he will be like the most high and he will do all these different things of which he has basically no power to bring to full fruition. Uh, although he gives it a pretty good run for a long time. Um, and so God is really making a statement here, a, a, an autobiographical statement, not only of who he is, but what he intends to do. And this is something that Moses is instructed. You're going to go and you're going to bring this to my people. And, and um, God will deliver them and God will be their, he will, he will be their Lord. Now we get to verse 9, and this is the uh, kind of the letdown. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. In other words, he said everything to them that we find there between verses 6 and 8, those seven I will statements. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You know, you've heard uh, it said about Barnabas, for example, one of Paul's traveling ministry companions, that Barnabas was an encourager. And, uh, and, and everybody thinks, oh, well, that's nice. But sometimes 
that gifting of encouragement is, is depreciated in our thinking. It's, it's underappreciated. Because when somebody is facing a difficult situation, a difficult life situation, the first thing they lose is perspective. The first thing that they lose is uh, a cool head to evaluate rationally and comprehensively their situation, the pros, the cons, the strengths, the weaknesses, the probabilities. We tend, when we're under pressure, to allow our mind to wander to the worst possible outcome, and then we have that outcome projected on how we feel about our situation currently. And so we start to lose hope, and we start to panic, um, fall into despair, reject any suggestion of help, because we don't see anything that's powerful enough to overcome this construct that we've developed ourselves about how we think things are going to go. And it's telling that we read there in verse 9 that the children of Israel didn't believe Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. In other words, their, their reading of their situation was so dire and so extreme that they couldn't accept Moses saying, hold on, God's got a plan. It's a perfect plan. It's a plan that began with a promise that was given to the patriarchs of our people. These are promises that they would have, they probably would have had knowledge of because I, I believe that it would have been transmitted through the generations. They would have known about Abraham. They would have known about Isaac. Certainly they would have known about Jacob because he was the, the progenitor of the 12 tribes. And so they've lost perspective here. And it's interesting because we get, we get commentary on the hearts and minds of the people of that time from all places, from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel speaks about this time between verses 5 and 9 of Ezekiel chapter 20. We read there, say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath, to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am the Lord your God. Now we've already seen that, right? In our study in the chapter of chapter six, we've seen the Lord say that now at least twice. I am the Lord. I am your God. I will be your God. And all of the promises that he made in those seven statements. Verse 6, on that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. So God is saying, hey, the promise I made to them at that time when I declared that I am their God, that I am their Lord, is that I found a land that is primo. Flowing with milk and honey is simply a way of expressing the richness of the land. Verse 7, then I said to them, each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Oh, okay. Now we see what has pressured the ability of God's people to receive the word of God. It's the same thing that oppresses people in our day and deafens their ears to hear the word and the promises of God. Idol worship. We read there in verse 7 that, that God's people were enamored with and had received and accepted and worshipped 
the gods of the Egyptians. And I'm sure along with those gods, they were worshiping the same God that rules a lot of our lives, which is materialism, which is just desiring to have more stuff, more substance, more mortal security. Verse 8 of Ezekiel 20, but they rebelled against me and they would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Do you see the picture now? Ezekiel describes it perfectly. The people, they don't believe the word of God because their hearts have been turned from God to idols. And God would, under different circumstances, God would bring judgment on them. God would bring chastisement on them. God would would give them what they seemingly wanted, which was not God. That's the choice that they had made in their hearts. But notice why God didn't do that. It wasn't because, well, they're actually swell people. You know, they're, they're actually, you know, they, they actually in a little way deserve thus and so. No, what God is doing here by delivering them out of Egypt in spite of their heart, which we saw back in our text in verse 9, where they, they refuse, they, they reject what Moses has brought to them from God. The reason why God continues on the plan and actually accomplishes it is so that his name will not be profaned among the Gentiles. This is, once again, proof positive that God is a promise keeper. People love to ask the question, is there anything God can't do? And they wrap their brains around all these different logical issues like, can he create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? He can create anything, right? So that must mean he can create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift, but then that would mean that he can't do everything. You know how that goes. Well, there is something that God can't do. God can't deny himself. God cannot go back on his word. It's a definitional issue. God is truth. He's light. In him is no sin, no darkness at all. And so God is seeing this rebellion on the part of his people. And he's saying, we're going ahead with this plan. This is going to happen because I have promised it and I will keep it. And it is a great assurance to us that even in the days when we might be in despair, we have lost perspective, we know the word intellectually, but we haven't received it in our hearts, and so we're in the midst of a, a crisis, and we're, 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 we're down on our faith that God will fulfill what he has said, because one of the promises I hold on to all the time is he that has begun a work in you will complete it to the day of redemption. I hold that with both hands. I hold tight to that with both hands and my wife says yes please do so so uh this is this is just a great a great application for us verse 10 and the lord spoke to moses saying go in tell pharaoh king of egypt to let the children of israel go out of his land (laughs) here's where moses moses spoke before the lord saying uh the children of israel have not heeded me 
how then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Now, honestly, I, I don't know. I just, the way my pea brain works. But when I read something like that, I, I actually see the movie. I, I, I see Moses talking to God. And he's saying, um, I'm going to go before Pharaoh. I'm going to say, hey, can you let my people go? He said, didn't I talk to you before about this? Yeah, uh, I'm back. Uh, let my people go. Yeah, what do they say about it? Well, they don't believe me. Really? And you're here to tell me to let them go. These people who don't even believe, they don't even believe you. Why should I believe you? Uh, you can see how Moses is kind of playing this in his mind. He's kind of gingerly playing it back to the Lord. And uh, <laughs> children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? Now, notice what he says here. He says, for I am a man of uncircumcised lips. Where have we heard that before? Or something like that before? We heard that from Isaiah when God calls Isaiah into the throne room of God. He sees the majesty of the Lord. In the moment where he has this clear revelation of God, and this is the same thing that happens to us. We study the word of God. We get deep into the word of God when we really just put ourselves raw before the Lord. Show me your glory, God. And he shows you through his word, his spirit working the word into you. You see the Lord for who he is. And the, after just being in awe, reverential awe of what you are coming to know, what the Lord is showing you about him, the ne very next thought is what a miserable wretch I am. What a miserable wretch I am to have the, to have the privilege to see God for who he is. And in that moment, your mouth is stopped. You know, I've seen several of these interviews, I'm sure you have too, where atheists are asked, by the way, should it be that on the moment that you pass from life on this earth, that all of a sudden you're in the presence of God, what are you going to say to him? And they always give these pithy, well-thought-out answers of, well, God, you know, if you were real, you would have shown us more clearly. Of your... They won't say a word. They will not say one word. They will be prone on the floor blubbering and shaking like a bowl of agitated jello. And that's where everybody is when they see who God really is. And, and you know, th th what God is doing here with Moses is what we talked about, guys, last night in the men's Bible study. Because James in James chapter 1, he's talking all about the value of trials in our life. Trials where God is showing us something that we think is impossible, insurmountable. It's going to defeat us. It's going to bury us. We're, woe is us. And God is saying, no, 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 don't see it like that. See it with joy. Because God is using that. He's allowed it in your life. He's using it to bring you to that next vista of faith. And, and uh, we, we married up with James chapter 1, this couple of verses from Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, where Paul, writing very, long, very much along the same lines as James is preaching in James chapter 1, he says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or patience, perseverance, character, and character, hope. It's a wonderful progression. Things are going bad. Moses, 
He's gone twice before. He's about to go twice before Pharaoh. He goes before his own people. He brings God's message. They don't believe a word he's saying. Moses didn't want the job in the first place. I don't talk real good, says Moses. God says, no problem. Your your brother will help you out there. What will I show him as a sign? They'll never believe me. What you got in your hand there? You know, every, every single thing that Moses sees as an insurmountable uh, objection, God's got another, here you go, here you go, here you go. And through Moses wrestling with each one of these moments of, of tribulation, God is producing in him a patience that is going to be pure gold when he actually does get the people away from Egypt. Now he's got to lead these grumbling, rebellious, stiff-necked people through the wilderness for 40 years? You don't think that took some patience? Where do you think it came from? It was happening right here. And that, that perseverance ultimately produces a character that is so sterling that God referred to Moses as the most humble man on the face of the earth. And clearly he was not that 40 years ago when he thought that he was going to single-handedly convince the people that he's a great leader, murdered an Egyptian who was beating up on an on a Israelite and, and God is, is working this in his life. And, and Moses is starting to get that sense of, I'm not worthy. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. And you might expect that God would say, okay, here you go again, Moses. Uh, I, you know, I'm just so done with you. You're, you're so uh, uncommitted and, and weak and you're blowing like the wind. And no, God's merciful. God's patient. Verse 13, then God spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so God's insistent. God's continuing with the plan. He's telling Moses, look, dude, just continue with the plan. Just keep doing what I say. Just keep being obedient and leave the rest to me. Now, in the verses that we have that follow, we get a genealogy. And this genealogy is going to be important. Um, we read there, and it's important because what, what the writer, which is Moses, is doing is he's establishing exactly who Moses and Levi, or Moses and Aaron are, and where they come from, because ultimately that's going to be very important regarding the priesthood that God's going to set up um, in, in a few chapters hence. So we read in verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. And these are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amran, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now, Amram, and here's where we get to the, the predecessors of Moses, Amram being Moses' father. Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. 
So Moses' dad married his aunt. If you go back far enough, you know, that was, that was uh, a common thing. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amran were 137. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nephig, and Zikri. Now, now, the sons of Korah, that's going to become significant later on. Because the sons of Korah, they were actually cousins of Moses. They will ultimately be involved in a rebellion that God deals with rather harshly. In Numbers chapter 16, we would see that. Um, and so th- he's just laying out, the, he's setting the table for all the things that are going to follow from this. Um, and the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Now, here it's important to follow the genealogy of Aaron because, as we know, Aaron ultimately will become uh, the one from whom uh, the, the, the high priests would, would, and the priesthood would come from. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaph, and these are the families of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. So verse 26 tells us in summary fashion the reason why all of a sudden out of nowhere we get another genealogy. And this is, this is something that God inspires the writers of Scripture to do because as I've said many times, the Bible is a lot of things, but one of the things that it is is one of the very best, if not the very best, history book ever to have been written. It is self-validating because it tends to cover its tracks as we go so that when you, when you understand later on the priesthood, you know exactly where it came from and you know exactly who these people are. This is why um, the genealogies of Jesus provided in Matthew and Luke's gospel, very important to take it all the way back so that you know that the promise that God made about Messiah was fulfilled exactly. And it's very similar with regard to Moses and Aaron. Verse 27, these are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. Uh, Again, you might say, well, it's kind of overkill that the Lord keeps pounding on that. But um, again, the Lord wants to make sure we understand these things that the Bible brings to us are not just given to us to just trust me. It, you know, you don't need to worry if historically or scientifically or geologically uh, things actually fit together as true. No, the Lord has nothing to hide. Everything in here is true. And it's for our sakes that the Lord sometimes gives us explanations that we might think are a little bit over the top. Uh, We move on and we see here again (laughs) Moses kind of objecting or kind of uh, being uh, noncommittal or lacking full commitment because verse 28, it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. See, he says that again there. Why does he keep saying that? Because people like Moses, like Aaron, and like all of us often forget. 
I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall, Hera, uh, how shall Pharaoh heed me? You know, again, the Lord is, is, is understanding that any one of us, when we get a, a clear understanding of what the Lord is asking us to do, we feel unworthy. We feel like, oh, surely, Lord, you could do better than me. Surely, Lord, uh, you can see who I am and, and there should be no reason why you'd want to use me. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. So I said, woe is me. This is Isaiah speaking on his own behalf. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So, so again, he's, he's getting this revelation of God and the, and the perfection and the power and the majesty and the might and the purity and the truth and the holiness of God. And, and in the, the very next thought is who he is. And we... You know, we can't hide from ourselves and we certainly can't hide from God. Notice how God addresses the problem with Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. God raises up human agents to do his will his choice not ours there's a myriad of ways god could accomplish his will but god sees power in taking his perfection and serving it up through our imperfection because in so doing god is not only ministering to those for whom the message is is intended but he is serving the messenger by giving them a clear understanding of the power of God. That, that passage there in 2 Corinthians about earthen vessels that God chooses to bring the, the excellency of the power of God to bear on the world in earthen vessels so that there would be no question but that that power and excellency comes right from the throne of God, not from us. And so God is not troubled at all about the way in which Moses sees himself. In fact, within God's heart, there's probably a little bit of celebration there. That I'm pleased by the fact that Moses understands who he is relative to who I am. He understands who he is relative to the importance of what I'm asking of him. But just as God addressed Isaiah's problem, God will address Moses' problem. God will address your problem when he asks you to do something that looks big, bigger than you, way bigger than you, and you start to take inventory of what will be required of the person who brings that message or that service of the Lord, and you weigh that against what you know about yourself and you don't see a way that it's going to happen. But again, you know, often said by our, our uh, mentor, Chuck Smith, where God guides, he provides. And that's not just with money or bodies or whatever. It's with whatever spiritual resource is required for us to do the will of God. God uh, has got that covered. So 
Um, that's, that's where the Lord leaves it. Verse seven or verse one of chapter seven. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. Now he's not saying you're going to be God or a God. What he's saying is you will speak on my behalf. Uh, for example, when we send an ambassador to another nation, foreign nation, that individual within the, within the commission given to him speaks for our entire government. They are as if they are the government of the United States of America in that place. They have been commissioned with that. And this is, this is the authority they've been given. This is why the Lord, for example, calls us ambassadors for the ministry of reconciliation. We actually, much like God is telling Moses, we speak as God. Not because we are gods, but because we have been commissioned by God as his ambassador, not for all things. Don't take any of my advice on, on financial matters. But when it comes to speaking about the ministry of reconciliation, not reconciliation to this church, not reconciliation to all you nice people, reconciliation back to God, I've got a commission to do that. I'm entitled to do that. I speak for God on that issue. This is what he's telling Moses. I have made you as God to Pharaoh. You'll be speaking my words before Pharaoh. As long as you are within your commission, you are speaking as if I'm there. Because in a real sense, I am. And Aaron will be your prophet. That is to say, he will be, God will speak as he wills to you, Moses. And Aaron will speak as you will him to speak. So there's obviously some trust along that, that chain of command, so to speak. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now get what's being said here. First of all, we read God saying that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. We would want to say, oh, but that's so unfair. You're basically making it impossible for Pharaoh to obey. No, that's not what's happening here. Um, what, what's happening here is God is removing the mercy that he would show to somebody who's got a, 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 a thought or an action planned in their mind that goes against God. And through God's mercy and through his hand of providence, he can lead us to the truth ultimately. But when people are so determined to reject the word and the way of God, there comes a time where God, as we've read many times in here, recently even, as God says in Romans chapter 1, God gives them over to that which they want to do. There's never a case where God hardens somebody's heart who otherwise, under their own volition, would choose to please and serve God and obey God. In other words, God doesn't look and say, oh, well, that Pharaoh's about to let my people go, but I can't let that happen. I'm going to harden his heart, and therefore he won't let them go. Never happens that way. And, and we, we, we might be tempted to, uh, to want to say that, um, that this seems unfair, but God knows the heart of every person. 
if, if you want to understand what it means to have a hardened heart that God ultimately capitulates to and lets you have what you want, in the book of Revelation, where we see, where we see the, uh, the people on the earth that go through the seven seal judgments, which, which basically takes the lives of one quarter of the population of the earth. So if we're talking about 8 billion people, for example, if it were to happen soon, uh, that's, that's, you know, 2 billion people lose their lives in, these, in these, um, these judgments. And then you go through the next series of judgments and we read that a third of the, of the earth's population, now a third of 6 billion people is another 2 billion people. So over this course of these two sets of judgments, half the world has lost their lives through judgments the likes of which people have never seen Never seen. And you'd think people would be on their knees crying out to God. No, I think it's Revelation chapter 9 tells us just the opposite. People continue in all of the sinfulness that they do, they curse God to the extent that they even believe in the notion of God. They curse that. And so what God is doing here is he is, he is allowing people to have that which they, they, they're predisposed to do. And um, notice what he will get out of this. God has got a purpose in everything that happens, even things that are directly opposed to his will, as Pharaoh will be. How's God going to use that? He's going to bring judgment upon the nation Egypt. And in the course of that judgment... Egyptians are going to know that God is the Lord. This will ultimately enrich the the Israelites greatly because on the doorstep of leaving, they're going to be given uh, extraordinary wealth from the Egyptians. Please go. We don't want to mess with whatever God you guys serve. Please go. And they will know that the Lord is God. Verse 5, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. I think we'll stop there for tonight. But again, this is a great laboratory in which to learn how God can take a very imperfect vessel, a very, a very rudimentary man. By the time Moses is before the Lord here at age 80, he has been more than emptied over the preceding 40 years. Went from being part of Pharaoh's court to tending his father-in-law's sheep. And it's natural to understand that he would come before God and say, oh God, you could do so much better than me. You don't, you don't want to do this with me. And by the way, I don't see how it's going to happen. The people that I'm supposed to be rescuing don't believe I can do it. Pharaoh has already rejected me on a, on a couple of occasions. Uh, this is just not going to work with me as your instrument. And God has not deterred one iota. And, and in, in the course of all of these different uh, encounters that he has with God and with Pharaoh, God is building that patience, that perseverance, constructing a character that is godly, using that character ultimately to provide the hope, the hope that is a certainty of the fulfillment of a future promise. It's a great, it's a great object lesson for us.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for speaking through your word to us, Lord. Thank you, God, for the lessons that we, we receive from the life of Moses, God. The Apostle Paul t- tells us that these things are written down as examples for us that we might learn from the things that people that you chose in the past to serve you went through and how they were able to keep their eyes fixed on you that they might achieve that which is your will in their time. Lord, there are so many things that are your will in our time, in our lives. And we can be as obstinate, uncertain, and unfaithful as Moses started out to be. And yet, Lord, if we only persevere, we know, God, that you will continue to finish the work that you started in us, Lord. And so, Lord, we eagerly await each and every trial, not that we wish trials upon ourselves, but as they come, we eagerly await the work that you do in our hearts to build godly character, to build patience, and to give us hope, Lord. We thank you, God, for meeting us here tonight. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.